1: I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it, and sprawled around, no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground, and tall, and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. And of course that is the wonderful poem Anecdote of the Jar by the American poet Wallace Stevens, and I'd like to read 11 of his essential poems tonight. And that is a good one to start with. I'll say right from the beginning that Wallace Stevens is known for, and indeed he spent a great deal of his life uh, writing very long poems. Um, Some of them include The Man with a Blue Guitar, Notes Mm -hmm. Toward a Supreme Fiction, The Auroras of Autumn, "Esthétique du Mal, and An Ordinary Evening in New Haven, and I'm sure that there are other ones other than those. Those are 20, 30 page poems just on their own. But I'm beginning to see a pattern here. I think of Robinson Jeffers. I think of someone I've been spending a lot of time with recently, uh, Kenneth Rexroth and other poets whose names escape me at the moment, um, who spent a great deal of their time uh, writing many, many long poems. And what strikes me about their work the most are actually the short ones. And I think if we're thinking of essential poetry, especially by someone like Wallace Stevens, I don't think the long poems are it. I think that if Wallace Stevens is going to live, that is outside of the minds and the work of academics and students, if he is just going to be in the air, sort of in the way that uh, Robert Frost might be, or bits and pieces of T.S. Eliot might be, I think that he will exist in smaller poems, in his short poems, especially like the one that I just read. And actually, why not we read another one uh, that is also from his first collection. And this will give a sense of uh, Wallace Stevens as well. This is his poem. I could say this every time. This is his famous poem, such and such. All of these are fairly well-known poems, but this is The Snowman one must have a mind of winter to regard the frost in the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow, and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is." That might be even more representative of what Wallace Stevens does. If you look back at Anecdote of the Jar, um, the basic idea seems to be this is what art or just what something that is intentionally made or intentionally placed um, in something like wild nature, uh, this is what art can do. It can make things seem orderly. Uh, If you just uh, do one thing intentionally, one thing in an orderly way. Just think of how you go about your day with small habits or not. Um, Suddenly, uh, if you do that, things will crowd around it and will not seem to have uh, more sense and more meaning, but they actually will have more sense and more meaning, just with that one bit of intention there. And he goes uh, in another direction, not another direction, but even more deeply with his idea of the winter and the nothing that is there and the nothing that is not. And what I did here, to what I've organized to read in between the poems of his that I want to read, are uh, bits and pieces that were written about his life over at the Poetry Foundation. They have a long essay about him there, as well as uh, some of my favorite excerpts from his Uh, from his letters. And this is just one bit of what the Poetry Foundation essay has to say about Wallace Stevens. He lived, by the way, from 1879 until 1955. And it says he was a master stylist, employing an extraordinary vocabulary and a rigorous precision in crafting his poems. But he was also a philosopher of aesthetics, vigorously exploring the notion of poetry as the supreme fusion of the creative imagination and of objective reality. And it says here that uh, Stevens single-mindedly concentrated on his idea of poetry as the perfect synthesis of reality and the imagination. Consequently, much of his poetry is about poetry, or in the case of the jar, it is just about um, what happens when we create something intentionally beautiful or utilitarian or whatever it is, and we place it in something that perhaps uh, isn't that intentional, um, which could just be our everyday life, reading a poem in the middle of a busy work day. Uh, much of his poetry is about that, or of about what is going on in the poet or the artist's mind, how they perceive things, how they feel things, and what is the quote-unquote reality of what is seen and felt by the poet, when in reality, in quote-unquote reality outside of the poet or the artist's head, uh, life, quote-unquote life and the news and uh, tragedy and everything else is going on. Um, This is someone who, you read his poetry, and it's as if he is Uh, talking to himself. You get a sense from other poets that they are speaking to the masses or they are having a dialogue with history or with other poets or other artists. Um, They're speaking to their spouse or their children or something of the kind. Uh, Wallace Stevens primarily seems to be uh, talking to himself and wondering about what this process of writing poetry is. And that essay goes on to say that the obscurity and the abstraction of his poetry has proven particularly appealing among students and academicians, and has consequently generated extensive criticism. And there's also a quotation from another scholar who mentions, especially his poem Sunday Morning, that what Stevens was going at was uh, trying to almost write the the scripture for a revelation of a secular religion now if you look at the the snowman poem where he goes from talking about pine trees crusted with snow and as I said and then ending up at the very end not, uh, beholding the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is you can understand after reading that description of him how That poem could contain both of those things, perhaps a a naturalistic, beautiful description of snow, and then something more abstract, more interior, more philosophic. This is a passage from uh, one of his uh, earliest letters. I think, actually, if you go looking at his letters, the first at least 100 pages, maybe more, are actually his journals from when he was a young man. And this is what uh, Wallace Stevens has to say as a young man. And I think this is sort of a clue as to the poetry that he later wrote. It says, An old argument with me is that the true religious force in the world is not the church but the world itself, the mysterious callings of nature and our responses. What incessant murmurs fill that ever-laboring, tireless church? But today, in my walk, I thought that after all, There is no conflict of forces, but rather a contrast. In the cathedral, I felt one presence. On the highway, I felt another. Two different deities presented themselves. And, though I have only a cloudy vision of either, yet I now feel the distinction between them. The priest in me worshipped God at one shrine, the poet another god at another time. The priest worshipped mercy and love, and the poet, beauty and might. In the shadows of the church I could hear the prayers of men and women, in the shadows of the trees nothing human mingled with divinity. And as I sat dreaming with the congregation, I felt how the glittering altar worked on my senses, stimulating and consoling them. And as I went tramping through the fields and woods, I beheld every leaf and blade of grass revealing, or rather betokening, the invisible. And I think you can see how that also uh, sort of informs his idea of what happens with the jar that is placed on a hill in Tennessee. And from my mind anyway, the the only parts of Stevens that feel dated, the only ones that place him uh, in the early or the first quarter of the 20th century, is when he does pretend in something like Sunday morning, to imagine that uh, organized religion, um, organized religious practice has lost all of its meaning, and it needs to be replaced with the revelation of secular religion. Um, That seemed to have been uh, something that people thought a hundred years ago, uh, but religion hasn't gone anywhere. You can criticize where it has gone, but it has not left the minds, it has not left the minds of many, many people, and of course I am one of them. I've spoken about Judaism many times on this podcast, but I think that I would take this paragraph from his, from his diary, from his journals, over any other thoughts that he later had uh, in poetry or elsewhere about religion and nature. And later on um, he says this about nature. He says, I thought on the train how utterly we have forsaken the earth, in the sense of excluding it from our thoughts. There are but few who consider its physical hugeness, its rough enormity. It is still a disparate monstrosity, full of solitudes and barrens and wilds. It still dwarfs and terrifies and crushes. The rivers still roar, the mountains still crash, and the winds still shatter. And not long after that, he says, I wish that groves still were sacred, or at least that something was, that there was still something free from doubt, that day unto day still uttered speech, and night unto night still showed wisdom. I grow tired of the want of faith, the instinct of faith. And I think it's worth pairing that remark from a young man who is mourning the loss of the religion that he was raised with, and not seeing a replacement for it anywhere, but still wishing that something like it were there. It's worth pairing that with a remark he made uh, later in his life in one of his letters where he says, thinking about poetry is, with me, an affair of weekends and holidays a matter of walking to and from the office so that I think his answer uh, to where he found things that were sacred. um, You could almost uh, suggest that uh, his early journal entry wouldn't say, I wish that the groves were still sacred, but I wish that a hill in Tennessee were still sacred. And you might say that what he was doing throughout his entire career uh, after these journals were written was that he was finding a way to still make them sacred, to make them a part of poetry, to make these landscapes and this nature and uh, other people's poetry and his own and the art and the literature that he became uh, uh, so fond of. uh, He made those things sacred in a way that uh, allowed him to feel that instinct of faith again in some sort of uh, secular, artistic way. And I think he was um, able to do that. But I do think it is sort of a blind alley to imagine, um, and this is the mistake of many religious people as well, that your own revelation should somehow uh, have anything to say about anybody else's sense of uh, what what is revelatory and what is holy and what is sacred and what communicates. So it is worth saying just this about his biography now, and then we can read a few more poems. Uh, It says that Wallace Stevens was born in 1879 in Reading, Pennsylvania. His family belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church, and when Stevens became eligible, he enrolled in the parochial schools. Um, After completing his studies in Reading, he decided to continue his literary pursuits and ended up at Harvard. But by 1900, uh, because his family were was short of money, he had to uh, drop out of Harvard, even though he appears to be having a great time there, working for the, or working for, and I believe editing one of the literary magazines, and publishing some early poetry there. Once he leaves Harvard, he decides to become a journalist and goes to live in New York City, and he writes for a while for the New York Evening Post. One of the things I remember most vividly, Um, And I last read his letters, it's very strange to realize, uh, 20 years ago, but some of these things have just stuck with me. Um, The author Stephen Crane died, and uh, Wallace Stevens was very affected by the death of Stephen Crane, and he writes about uh, going to his funeral. And I believe he is quite moved and quite uh, just made upset by how few people are there. But he uses his time in New York City not to be a Bohemian and not to do anything of, like that. And it just says that each day he explored various areas of the city and recorded his observations in his, uh, in his journal. Um, and then it says that he went to the New York School of Law from 1901 to 1904. In 1908, he accepted a post with the American Bonding Company and Insurance Firm. And in 1916, he went to work for the Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company, which is where he remained as a, where he remained employed for the rest of his life, becoming vice president in 1934. And that takes you uh, just about to the point if you uh, where he begins his career there in 1916 to where he begins to write the poetry that he is known for. So let's read two more poems from his first collection. And then we can get back to his biography, and little bits from his letters. This is a a poem called Six Significant Landscapes. One. An old man sits in the shadow of a pine tree in China. He sees a larkspur, blue and white, at the edge of the shadow, move in the wind. His beard moves in the wind. The pine tree moves in the wind. Thus, water flows over weeds. Two, the night is of the color of a woman's arm. Night, the female obscure, fragrant and supple, conceals herself. A pool shines like a bracelet Shaken in a dance. 3. I measure myself against a tall tree. I find that I am much taller, for I reach right up to the sun with my eye, and I reach to the shore of the sea with my ear. Nevertheless, I dislike the way the ants crawl in and out of my shadow. 4. When my dream was near the moon, the white folds of its gown filled with yellow light, the soles of its feet grew red, its hair filled with certain blue crystallizations from stars not far off. 5. Not all the knives of the lamp posts nor the chisels of the long streets nor the mallets of the domes and high towers can carve what one star can carve shining through the grape leaves and six rationalists wearing square hats think in square rooms looking at the floor looking at the ceiling they confined themselves to right-angled triangles. If they tried rhomboids, cones, waving lines, ellipses, as, for example, the ellipse of the half moon, rationalists would wear sombreros. And that's another thing about his poems is that You could have 11 essential poems by Wallace Stevens, organized by how many different people, and you'd come up with a different set of them. Uh, A lot of them would read like the sixth thing that I just read, the sixth part of that poem. Where it is philosophical, there's a sense of it being sort of dryly humorous. I think of his poem, The Comedian in Letter C, or it just seems to be him doing uh, sort of uh, an early 20th century version of a guitar solo and just having fun with what he is able to do and how he is able to sound, talking to himself. But since he's not Shakespeare, and since uh, it's not a monologue delivered to a globe audience, but a monologue delivered to himself, at least for me, those don't quite come off as much as something as vivid as I measure myself against a tall tree. I find that I am much taller, for I reach right up to the sun with my eye. And this is, this is called Anecdote of Men by the Thousand, and it says, The soul, he said, is composed of the external world. There are men of the East, he said, who are the East. There are men of a province who are that province. There are men of a valley who are that valley. There are men whose words are as natural sounds of their places as the crackle of toucans and the place of toucans. The mandoline is the instrument of a place. Are there mandolines of western mountains? Are there mandolines of northern moonlight? The dress of a woman of Lhasa in its place is an invisible element of that place made visible, and to me, I can't quite put it into words why I love that poem, but what I do have the instinct to, uh, enough of an instinct to say is that what he does in that poem, what he does in one page or a page and a half, is seems to be what he is elaborating on and what he is trying to do in his much later poems, later in life. Um, Here are just three passages from uh, various points of his life in his letters that also kind of illuminate uh, what he is doing and where he is going. He says, I should love to see you again, particularly if we could spend an evening together. Your pamphlet on Beethoven's symphonies is on my table at home and occasionally I take it up just to hear you talk. It is naturally full of your intonations. And you can see little bits of that all through his letters and the way that he deals with friends. Um, there's a sense very early on in his life, I believe it was just before he got married, and maybe after for a little while as well, where he was able to travel the country uh, with for the insurance company, and that is where a lot of his nature poems his early nature poems come from. And I think that's the only time that he ever left the country. He was in Canada briefly. Other than that, he didn't seem to travel very much except down to Florida, where he once got into a fist fight and was knocked to the ground by uh, Ernest Hemingway in Key West. But um, there's a sense of him where he is living in Connecticut in his house where he doesn't, his imagination is such and his mind is such that he doesn't need to go places because he can imagine them. It would be nice if this friend came to visit, um, but in his place, his friend's book is enough. We might say, you and I might say something like that um, just politely to somebody. I can pick up your book and it sounds like you uh, talking to me. But I think Wallace Stevens really did uh, mean that. There are other parts in his letters where a friend from Ceylon, or he gets a letter from a, from a friend of his who's living in Ceylon, and the letter smells of the fruit of Ceylon. And, um, and someone, and he even says something like that. Why do I need to travel to this place if I have uh, just the scent of it in my home? Something like that. What a fascinating way to uh, live your interior life. Um, although it may not have been such a great time to be his wife or to be his child. Um, in another, uh, letter he says, I think that every poet of any interest considers himself as a person with something essential and vital. That such a person is to be vitalized or that such a person is to be visualized as an idler A man without clothes, or drunk, or in any way an eccentric, or a person somehow monkey is nonsense. The contemporary poet is simply a contemporary who writes poetry. He looks like anyone else, acts like anyone else, wears the same kind of clothes, and certainly is not an incompetent, and that is Wallace Stevens' uh, comment on uh, why do poets uh, have to be Bohemians and go around uh, destroying themselves, destroying others, or just acting weird? But you have to say, in the same sense, um, just as the the Bohemian is dependent upon their their own grammar of, uh, of how to act and their own uh, uniform of what they wear, uh, Stevens is basically doing the same thing. He is imagining that... Um, Poets should be, could basically be just like him walking to work every day in a suit, um, uh, looking like anyone else and acting like anyone else. And in another uh, letter he says, um, I know exactly why I write poetry and it is not for an audience. I mean, we, we probably could have guessed that. Um, it is not for an audience. I write it because for me it is one of these sanctions of life. This is a very serious thing to say at this time of the morning so that I shall let it go at that for the present moment. That is a bit of his humor there. But I write it because, for me, it is one of the sanctions of life. He says elsewhere that um, that he sees very little reason to make a system or make a philosophy or make a, um, a manifesto out of his... Uh, idea of what poetry is or how to write it. He says in one of his letters that each poem requires its own theory, its own justification. There, there really is no way to uh, make a school of thought or uh, a bull- bullet-pointed sort of list with these kinds of things. But what he knows, the thing that he can say, is that I write it because for me it is one of the sanctions of life. And that uh, is about as good a way of describing why any of us out there write poetry, continue to do it in the year 2024. So he's working, uh, he's starting to work in insurance in 1908. In 1916, he ends up uh, with the company that he spends the rest of his life with. But in between then, uh, he marries Elsie Viola Catchell in 1909. And for the next 10 years or so, he involves himself in the New York City artistic community through his association with several writers including the poets Marianne Moore and William Carlos Williams. He ended up being published in Poetry Magazine when Poetry Magazine was just starting out. But he was also keenly interested in the art exhibitions at the city's many museums and galleries and he was there at the Armory Show of 1913 where Picasso and Duchamp and many others were first seen. Um, in America. And he developed a fondness for modern painting, eventually becoming a connoisseur and a collector of Asian art, including painting pottery and jewelry. And he particularly admired Asian works for their vivid colors and their precision and clarity, the qualities that he later imparted in his own art, especially as you can see in something like six significant landscapes that I just read from. But then in 1922, 1923, He publishes his first book called Harmonium. Uh, And then he waits another 13 years to publish ideas of order. Now I always uh, read that, or I think I remember reading it or hearing about it somewhere, that that was sort of uh, a kind of discipline that he was able to have over himself, where he waited to establish himself a little more uh, in his job before he began writing poetry again. Over at the Poetry Foundation, it mentions that um, part of this unproductiveness was attributed by Stevens to the birth of his daughter, Holly, who was born in 1924. And like his autobiographical character named Crispin, Stevens found that parenting thwarted writing. And in a letter to Harriet Monroe, he noted that the responsibilities of parenthood were, quote, a terrible blow to poor literature. And that's even more of a sense of discipline that uh, uh, at least I have not been able to uh, mirror. I think I've written just as much or more since my daughter was born, just almost maybe as a way of proving that I am not just a father now, I am still a poet or whatever it is. But I also remember the remark of Seamus Heaney's, who is a very different person. Uh, You get the idea from Wallace Stevens, but still the comment holds where uh, Seamus Heaney says that when his uh, first child was born, he had the thought that, well, if poets were able to write poems in the trenches of World War I, I think that I should be able to write them in between changing the nappies. So there's two different versions of that situation as well. Now we can go actually to that collection from 1936, Ideas of Order. And I will read to you what might be my favorite poem of his, maybe my second favorite. And it's called How to Live, What to Do. Last evening, the moon rose above this rock, impure upon a world unpurged. The man and his companion stopped to rest before the heroic height. Coldly the wind fell upon them in many majesties of sound. They that had left the flame freaked sun to seek a sun of fuller fire. Instead, there was this tufted rock, massively rising high and bare beyond all trees, the ridges thrown like giant arms among the clouds. There was neither voice nor crested image, no chorister nor priest. There was only the great height of the rock, and the two of them standing still to rest. There was the cold wind and the sound it made, away from the muck of the land that they had left. Heroic sound, joyous and jubilant and sure." And I love that, I suppose, because it isn't a bland declaration that uh, God is dead or organized religion is dead. It gives you something else, Um, and he doesn't give you the answer either. Um, One of the comments I read from uh, a scholar preparing for this episode, said something like, uh, well, first it made the, the observation that this was Wallace Stevens favorite poem from the collection ideas of order, but that uh, this scholar didn't like it because it seemed heavy handed, um, and obvious. I don't know that it's maybe it seems both to you out there, but it doesn't seem that way to me. Um, I think the question it wants us to answer is, uh, what is your version of this? Uh, what is your version of this mountain and this rock Uh, what is your version of the man and his companion who are you there with what is your version of this heroic height Um, what is your version of the ridges thrown like giant arms among the clouds Um, what is your replacement uh, for the chorister the priest the voice or the crested image or do you have one Uh, is it uh, poetry and art Is it uh, reform Judaism, as it is uh, with me in the huge uh, tradition of uh, Jewish commentary and biography and all the rest of it, um, and of poetic biography and poetic tradition and all the rest of that, uh, and mythology and religion. Um, What is your version of this? Because it's not telling you what to do. I think it's perhaps pointing away to you finding your own sense of what that vision might be. Now the other poem, probably the longest one that you will hear, no doubt the longest one that you will hear tonight, um, is, I want to get the page number right, is the great poem, uh, idea, The Idea of Order at Key West. And what I'm actually going to do, I'm going to skip that poem for now, and we'll close the episode with it, with a, with a recording of Wallace Stevens reading it. So we can look at uh, what he was able to do. Uh, He publishes Harmonium in 1923, Ideas of Order in 1936, Owl's Clover in 1936 as well, The Man with the Blue Guitar in 1937, Parts of a World in 1942, Transport to Summer in 1947, The Auroras of Autumn in 1950, and then I believe in 1955, uh, the Collected Poems. And you go looking at the reviews for Harmonium in 1923, and he seems, people seem to think that he's kind of precious, art for art's sake, um, just sort of, I don't want to say twiddling his thumbs, but just happy with the sounds that he is able to make and the clever things he is able to say. By the time you get to ideas of order, and then the man with the blue guitar, and then parts of a world, uh, people are starting to realize Uh, This guy is uh, someone that you can't quite uh, deny. This is someone you need to look at and read seriously, so that by the time of the Auroras of Autumn and uh, the collected poems in 1955, uh, he is up there with the best American poets in the 20th century. And what does it say? Yes, it says, Uh, Following the publication of Ideas of Order, Stevens began receiving increasing recognition as an important and a unique poet, but um, he never gave up his day job. Uh, The image of him that you have from his letters and from his biography, you can read uh, the two-volume biography by Joan Richardson, uh, which was published in the 1980s, I think, a more recent biography by Paul Mariani from within the last 10 years or so. But uh, the, the anecdote that you get is of a man leaving his house in the morning, walking to work at the insurance company, and writing, uh, composing his poems in his head, getting to work and dictating those poems to his secretary, and then uh, after he, I suppose, uh, makes some changes to them, he, he throws away the draft so, he, so that he has... Uh, a draft of his poems that he likes and perhaps he goes home and continues working on it. And that is sort of his life to and from the office, back and forth every day, writing his poems in his head, uh, dictating them to his secretary. And I would love to get inside his secretary's head or just have some sense of what that was like. And indeed, there is a um, uh, a sort of oral history uh, of remarks from from friends and acquaintances about Wallace Stevens that I have been meaning to buy, for the last twenty years. And meanwhile, people that he worked with, um, until he uh, before he won the Pulitzer Prize for his collected poems, um, many of them didn't know that he uh, wrote poetry, at all. And there is a sense that he craved that kind of order, and that kind of anonymity, and the kind of control that he had over what he was able to do and how he did it that is quite beautiful and quite admirable in the sort of poetic moment where everyone uh, needs to be on Twitter and needs to be uh, promoting themselves uh, nonstop. And I think that's also why I'm doing the short poems here, why the short poems mean so much to me. I don't know how long Stephen's uh, daily walk to work was, but it strikes me that uh, the poems I'm reading here tonight are the kinds that he could have written in his head uh, while he was walking to work. And I think in one of the letters um, or one of the biographies, there's the idea of him walking back and forth to work and some neighborhood kids uh, maybe mocking him or about to mock him or something. And uh, one of the neighborhood women who knows who he is, uh, stops them and says something like, you know, that is a great poet. Uh, don't, you know, don't go throwing stones at that guy. Um, let's see here. Page one, or do we have time for another comment here? Might as well read this one, this comment before the next poem. So I say that uh, he began to be recognized more. But then, late in his life, he says this. Who cares? Who the heck cares? One of the greatest spectacles of the world today is the flood of books coming from nothing and going back to nothing. And you think of the nothing of the snowman poem. Um, This is due, in part, to the subjection of literature to money, in part to the existence of a lettered class to which literature is a form of self-indulgence. The savage assailant of life who uses literature as a weapon just does not exist any more than the savage lover of life exists. Literature nowadays is largely about nothing by nobodies. Is it not so? And so you can understand why he may have seen very little reason to give up his day job or even. I think in some of the letters he is uh, acutely jealous of all the fame that Robert Frost is getting, Um, but then not really. I think he's happy uh, doing what he is doing, or at least realizing his own uh, limitations. This is a poem called uh, Gallant Chateau. Is it bad to have come here? and to have found the bed empty. One might have found tragic hair, bitter eyes, hands hostile and cold. There might have been a light on a book lighting a pitiless verse or two. There might have been the immense solitude of the wind upon the curtains. Pitiless verse, a few words, tuned and tuned and tuned and tuned. It is good. The bed is empty. The curtains are stiff and prim and still. And a good companion to that poem is what, what I read, I think, in an episode on love poems, one of the great greatest love poems I know here. And I was surprised to come upon this uh, last year, coming from Wallace Stevens. Bouquet of Belle's Gavoire. Just think of what this poem is saying about uh, love and infatuation and all the rest of it. And has it ever been put uh, quite this miraculous way? It's separated into six sections, but I'm just going to read it as one poem so you don't get the distraction from the numbers. Uh, Bouquet of Belle's Gavoire. It is she alone that matters. She made it. It is easy to say the figures of speech and why she chose this dark particular rose. Everything in it is herself. Yet the freshness of the leaves, the burn of the colors are tinsel changes out of the changes of both light and dew How often had he walked beneath summer and the sky to receive her shadow into his mind, miserable that it was not she. The sky is too blue, the earth too wide, the thought of her takes her away, the form of her is something else, the form of her in something else. The sky is too blue, the earth too wide. The thought of her takes her away. The form of her in something else is not enough. The reflection of her here, then there, is another shadow, another evasion, another denial. If she is everywhere, she is nowhere to him. But this she has made. If it is another image, it is one she has made. It is she that he wants to look at directly. Someone before him to see and to know. This is Wallace Stevens, by the way, telling you um, he is done having, or the, the narrator in the poem anyway, uh, is done Having a stand-in for this person that he loves, uh, he wants her or nothing else. Let's see. Let's get to another uh, another remark of his. He says, um, or "I could let me let me list these off. They, these are the long poems uh, of his that uh, people know and." For those of you out there who are interested in uh, long poems like these, uh, you should definitely check them out, especially uh, The Auroras of Autumn and An Ordinary Evening in New Haven. But they are The Man with the Blue Guitar, Notes Towards a Supreme Fiction, The Auroras of Autumn, Esthétique du Mal, and An Ordinary Evening in New Haven. Uh, Anyone who has a chance to read these and just send their impressions along, do Do email me in the link in the post description. But later in his life, uh, near the end of his life, Wallace Stevens uh, said this in a letter. If Beethoven could look back on what he had accomplished and say that it was a collection of crumbs compared to what he had hoped to accomplish, where should I ever find a figure of speech adequate to size up the little that I have done compared to that which I had once hoped to do? Of course, I have had a happy and well kept life, but I have not even begun to touch the spheres within spheres that might have been possible if, instead of devoting the principal amount of my time to making a living, I had devoted it to thought and poetry. Certainly it is true, as it ever was, that whatever means most to one, whatever means most to one should receive all of one's time. And that has not been true in my case. But then, if I had been more determined about it, I might now be looking back, not with a mere sense of regret, but at some actual devastation. And that's an incredible thing to say. On the one hand, he imagines living his life differently, and even then not being happy with it. If he had spent all of his time on poetry, he may have looked back with uh, some sense of regret and actual devastation the other, and I'm beginning to see a pattern here um, with these extremely uh, strong poets. Uh, Last week I read from Ted Hughes, and I've mentioned this many times, that every 10 years or so, Ted Hughes eventually says in his letters, you know what, I wasted the last 10 years of my life doing this, 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 and this, when I should have been doing this. Um, And even Wallace Stevens comes around to saying that at at the end of his life. Um, You have to imagine that that kind of doubt... And that kind of revision about your own feelings um, and your own achievements is just uh, par for the course. It's part of the game. And uh, uh, get used to it, push past it, and uh, ignore it uh, if you can. And let's see here. I wanted to read three poems from his very last collection, and then we'll call it The um, Then we will call it A Night, or then we will actually play Stevens reading his poem, Idea of Order, in Key West. This is from his last collection called uh, The Rock, and here it is. Here's the first of them, The Poem That Took the Place of a Mountain. There it was, word for word, the poem that took the place of mountain. He breathed its oxygen, even when the book lay turned in the dust of his table. It reminded him how he had needed a place to go to in his own direction, how he had recomposed the pines, shifted the rocks, and picked his way among clouds for the outlook that would be right, where he would be complete in an unexplained completion, the exact rock where his inexactness would discover at last the view toward which they had edged, where he could lie and, gazing down at the sea, recognize his unique and solitary home. And of course, that brings me back. You've got the uh, the ro- uh, the mountain and the rock. That's how how to live, what to do. He's not talking about a mountain uh, literally. What is your mountain or what is your rock? What is your version of what you have lived with that you can perhaps recognize your own unique and solitary home with at the end of your life? Um, And also the jar in Tennessee. Uh, You know, uh, how many years later, uh, 30 or 40 years later, he talks about recomposing the pines and shifting the rocks and picking his way among the clouds uh, with his words and his poems and organizing nature or letting nature organize itself around his thoughts. Uh, this is what he has been doing and uh, hasn't it been um, a grand time. And he says sort of the same thing again. He's similar to Whitman in that way, in the sense that he, uh, he had one trick. Whitman's trick was the voice and the exuberance, which ran out of gas. Um, but that was the thing that he brought to it that was new. Uh, Wallace Stevens' uh, one trick is the, the power of imagination. The power of imagination over a par- what is apparently actually lived reality of going to work at uh, the insurance company every day. Um, the power of living with your own mind and your own imagination throughout your life and uh, what strength you can get from it and what vision you can get from it. And you've got the same thing here with this poem called The Planet on the Table. Ariel was glad he had written his poems, they were of a remembered time, or of something seen that he liked. Other makings of the sun were waste and welter, and the ripe shrub writhed. His self and the sun were one, and his poems, although makings of his self, were no less makings of the sun. It was not important that they survive. What mattered was that they should bear some lineament or character, some affluence, if only half-perceived, and the poverty of their words, of the planet of which they were a part. If only was it um, some lineament or character, some affluence, if only half-perceived, and the poverty of their words of the planet of which they were a part you can just as well say the book on the table the planet on the table the mountain on the table of the mountain of which they were a part of the mind or the whatever it is of which they were a part Um, wonderful thing to say and perhaps this is probably my favorite of his if you had to make me choose. And this is a poem that the American poet James Merrill said. I always like to think of this poem the way other people do, the 23rd Psalm. And I'll preface it just with this one sentence uh, near the end of Stephen's letters where he says, the web of friendship between poets is the most delicate thing in the world and the most precious. Your note does me immense good. And so I read this next poem, Final Soliloquy of the Interior paramour, not just with the sense that I've always had of it being uh, a traditionally romantic poem, uh, a love poem in the sense of Stevens, uh, uh loving the interior paramour, the love in his mind, but also a thanks to the poets that he knew and the poets that he uh, loved that he did not know directly, but certainly lived and learned a great deal from. This is uh, this is one of those poems that you can uh, live with for the rest of your life. Final soliloquy of the interior paramour, and then right after that, we will hear Wallace Stevens himself read Idea of Order at Key West. Light, the first light of evening, as in a room in which we rest and... For small reason, think the world imagined is the ultimate good. This is, therefore, the intensest rendezvous. It is in that thought that we collect ourselves, out of all the indifferences, into one thing. Within a single thing, a single shawl, wrapped tightly round us, since we are poor, a warmth, a light, a power, the miraculous influence. Here, now, we forget each other and ourselves. We feel the obscurity of an order, a whole, a knowledge, that which arranged the rendezvous. Within its vital boundary, in the mind, we say, God and the imagination are one. How high that highest candle lights the dark. Out of this same light, out of the central mind, we make a dwelling in the evening air, in which being there together is enough. And I just have to say, you go back to the comment that he made as a young man. I wish that groves still were sacred, or at least that something was, that there was still something free from doubt, that day unto day still uttered speech, and night unto night still showed wisdom. I grow tired of the want of faith, the instinct of faith. Now I ask you, you take the journey of just the the 11 poems I read tonight, and ending with that one, a final soliloquy then here, Paramore, and the one you're about to hear. Um, Has he found the the faith that he's talking about in this letter? Or the sacredness he's talking about as a young man? Perhaps not. But doesn't it seem as if he has found what he needed to in place of those things, his own version of it, that he could create uh, himself, and with the help of his own mind and his own soul, and with uh, the help of his particular way of perceiving uh, nature and thought, and all the rest of it. I think it's a wonderful thing. And so here tonight, let's end with Wallace Stevens reading, Idea of Order at Key West.
0: She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice. Like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves, And yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood inhuman of the veritable ocean. The sea was not a mask, no more was she. The sun and water were not medley sound, even if what she sang was what she heard, since what she sang was uttered word by word. It may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind, but it was she, and not the sea, we heard. For she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, tragic-gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Whose spirit is this, we said, because we knew it was the spirit that we sought and knew that we should ask this often as she sang. If it was only the dark voice of the sea that rose, or even colored by many waves, if it was only the outer voice of sky and cloud, of the sunken coral water-walled, however clear, it would have been deep air, the heaving speech of air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end and sound alone. But it was more than that. More even than her voice and ours, among the meaningless plungings of water and wind, theatrical distances, bronze shadows heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea, It was her voice that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang. And when she sang, the sea, whatever self it had, became the self that was her song for she was the maker. Then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there never was a world for her except the one she sang, and singing, made. Ramon Fernandez, tell me if you know Why, when the singing ended and we turned toward the town, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there, as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging Deepening, enchanting night. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea, words of the fragrant portals, dimly starred, and of ourselves and of our origins, in ghostlier. Demarcations, keener sounds.